Okay, now we come to our our reading, and we've got two chapters to work through this morning. Um, We are, as you know, reading through the book of 1 Samuel at this time, and we're going to read in a few moments chapters 5 and 6. Now, just a quick recap where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. You'll remember that in uh, chapter 1, we learned about Hannah, who was barren and couldn't have a child. She made a pact with God. She was blessed with a son, Samuel, and she promised to give him back to the Lord, which she did. She then took him to Shiloh, where Eli resided, and gave Eli the charge over Samuel. And Samuel was being brought up with Eli in his priesthood. And then in chapter 2, we learned of the fall of the house of Eli. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were abusing their position in the temple and they were being irreligious, shall we say. And because Eli didn't take heed and deal with the situation, um, God set out to punish him. And the word was brought to him by a man, uh, we don't know who he was, saying that uh, his two sons would die on the same day. In chapter 3, Samuel, we learned as a boy, heard from the Lord on his fourth time of hearing from the Lord. At night, Eli realised it was the Lord and Eli asked Samuel to make himself the servant, to to say to the father, I'm your servant, and and Samuel heard from the Lord for the first time. Last week, in chapter 4, the Israelites are battling again with the Philistines. And during the battle, the ark is lost. The Philistines have the ark. And on the day, uh, Hophni and Phinehas were both killed, as was spoken for by the Lord earlier on. And also, towards the end of chapter 4, Eli dies after hearing the news. So that's where we are. So now, we'll read from chapter 5 and 6. And chapter 5 starts like this and is entitled The Ark in Ashdod and Ekron. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, what should we do? With the ark of the Lord, tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send him? And they replied, five gold tumours and five gold rats according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did did, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, Get a new cart ready with the two cows uh, that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not then we shall know that it was not by his hand, that it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were... Oh, gosh, this is going to do my teeth in or my tongue. (coughs) Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Uh, Philistines, they were, uh, there were five major towns. And the number of gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day. 
in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. I've entitled this sermon, um, Keeping Up with the Shemeshians. Okay? Some of you won't even know why that's supposed to be funny, um, but you can come and ask me afterwards. Um, Because the people of Beth Shemesh ask um, ask the key question behind these three chapters. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And the Lord has shown himself holy in three scenarios. One that we saw last week um, to Israel as they, as they lost uh, the ark of God. And uh, this week to the Philistines after their capture of the ark. And to the, then to the people of Beth Shemesh as the ark is returned. In each case, the Lord has shown himself as the holy, personal God. And so in each case, we learn something about the holiness of God, and we learn something about how we can relate to him as a a holy uh, and a personal God. So let's pick up uh, last week. We've learned already that the Lord would rather let his people be defeated than be treated as a talisman which is an astonishing thing. And actually, it's all the more astonishing now you've seen what the Lord does through the ark to the Philistines. Wherever the ark goes in Philistine territory, the people are afflicted. God fights against his enemies. And that's what Israel wanted, but the Lord would not do it because they were not treating him as a holy personal God. They were treating him as a talisman, a lucky rabbit's foot that would make everything turn out all right. And he will allow you to be defeated rather than allow you to treat him as a talisman or a label. I'm I'm a Christian. It's just a name. It's just a people I associate with. Or an insurance policy, excuse me, (coughs) to make sure you're kind of covered when you die. Or a power source to help you with your self-improvement. Lord will not allow you to treat him in any of those ways. He is a holy and a personal God, and he refuses to allow you to treat him in an impersonal way. And that's an irony, because as evangelicals, we talk about having a personal relationship with God. I'm sure you'll have heard that somewhere along the way, and somebody will have used those words to you, probably. It's one of the glorious truths we believe that you can know God personally, as person to person, um, without any other intermediary, other than his word and his spirit. But, the irony is we talk about having a personal relationship with God, and then we treat him in an impersonal way. If the word of God is rare in your life, the word of the Lord was rare in Israel, if the word of the Lord is rare in your life, if you're not reading or not studying or not hearing or not reflecting on the word of God, then you are not, by definition, enjoying a personal relationship with God. 
Does that make sense? The word of the Lord is rare in your life. You're not having a personal relationship with God because half of the speaking is not happening. You may be speaking to him, but you're not opening up the opportunity for him to speak to you. At best, you've been introduced to Christ. You became a Christian. uh, You trusted in Christ and what he's done, which is amazing. And then if the word of the Lord is rare, you're ignoring him. You're not bothering to pay attention to his voice. And you will find yourself defeated. Defeated in the war with sin and self and quite possibly defeated in your, in your witness. Though the Lord is more concerned about witness sometimes than we are. Because the Lord refuses to play that game. So the Lord shows himself holy to the people of Israel. But the Lord now shows himself as, as holy to the, uh, to the Philistines. It's a great story, isn't it? You've got to say it's a... It's a great story. And what the Old Testament does is it reinforces New Testament truths with with pictures, with stories, with narrative. So the Philistines, they've um, won the battle against the people of Israel. Uh, At least that's what they think. And they think their god Dagon has has won the battle over the Lord Yahweh. So they put the ark of the God in the temple of their... uh, Yeah, the ark of God in the temple of their god, um, Dagon. Maybe, as a, maybe they put him there as a defeated enemy. Maybe they think, well, well, we'll have the Lord as well. But the Lord is not prepared to share worship with any other God, any other so-called God. So after the first night, um, Dagon is on the ground. He's, he's face down. The Lord's pushed him over. So, yeah, the people of Ashdod um, stick him up again. After the second night, his, his hands and his feet... Uh, are broken off. The Lord's chopped off his hands and his feet, which is what sometimes kings did to their defeated enemies to show who was the boss. The Lord is not prepared to share your worship with anybody or, or anything else. Our God is a jealous God. Jealous for you and for your worship and for your heart. As Moses said, for the people went into the promised land. Don't be careful not to forget uh, the covenant of the Lord, your God, has, that he made with you. Don't make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. He's not prepared to share worship with people's little Dagons, even today, whatever they might be. Anything in your heart that your heart desires before the Lord. And to make matters worse for the people of, of Ashdod, he afflicts, the, um, he afflicts them with tumours. could be bubonic plague, if you think of the association of rats and, and tumours. But anyway, it's, it's come under the hand of the Lord. And I love this, don't you? The people of Ashdod say, what should we do? And what the rulers get together and they say, uh, move it to Gath. What were they thinking? How is that going to help? I'd love to know what they were thinking. It's just classic passing the book. Okay, uh, problem in Ashdod, move it to Gath. The same thing happens in Gath. They get the rulers together. What do they say? Um, okay, move it to Ekron. But by the time that the same thing has happened in the three of the five towns of Philistia, they get the message that it is too dangerous 
to have the Lord around if you're not going to bow down to him. Come into covenant relationship with him. So after three out of five, they get the message, it's, time, it's got to go back to Israel. Send it back with five gold tumors and five gold rats, as we read. They harness the two cows, and then they lock up the calves. And all the way, all the way those cows are lowing, and I wonder whether they're lowing for their, uh, for their calves. Because out of nature, uh, two cows that have just had calves will head back to wherever they hear the cows, uh, their calves calling back to them. So it, it's a test. If it, goes up, if it goes straight up to Israel, it's the Lord. And of course, the cows, lowing as they are, which may be calling to their, their calves, off they go and they go straight. And the Philistines start to intuitively, I think, understand something about the Lord, something about worship. The first thing is a guilt offering that, that fits the crime. Or at least they think it fits the crime. Gold tumors, gold rats, to get rid of the tumors uh, and the rats. They know about softening and hardening their heart. They've heard about Pharaoh. They know that they need to soften their hearts. And if they harden their hearts, it's only going to make things worse. So it's strange, isn't it, how much the priests and diviners of the Philistines get right. But it just gives the Philistines enough... Uh, Enough knowledge to get rid of the Lord, really. And you kind of meet people like that, don't they? Maybe the people who have been around churches and they have just enough knowledge to, to fend God off, really. And to keep him at arm's length. But they've never really softened their hearts. What the Philistines have yet to understand is that there's only one true sacrifice for human sin. And that is a spotless human life laid down. Ultimately, you, you, can't, you can't atone sin for sin. You can't atone gold rat for um, rat that's plaguing you. You can't atone gold tumour um, for the, for the tumour that's, that's plaguing you. You can't atone for, for this week's anger with some some little gold-shouting person, um, you know, that you give to the Lord. You can't um, atone for your impure thoughts this week by um, some gold-inappropriate statue that you give to the Lord. It's, uh, there is only one atonement for sin, and it is atonement for the sinner. And so it is a spotless human life laid down. You can't atone for sin's uh, one by one, you can only atone once for all, you a sinner, by laying down a spotless human life. And that's what Jesus does. So they get a bit of the truth, but, but not, not all the way. But this is the question, isn't it? This is the, is, this is the fascinating question. Why does the Lord not allow Israel to use the ark uh, to bring about power? And defeat to his enemies. And yet, now that the Philistines have got it, he fights against them wherever they put it. And at first sight, it, it might seem kind of almost um, perverse. He doesn't fight when the Israelites are present with the ark, and he does fight when the ark's out there on its own. 
And the Lord is fighting for the same thing. Now, this is the answer, I think. He is fighting um, for his honour. The Lord is the only true personal God. Now, we'll come back to that. He's fighting for his, his honour. And so when the Israelites have the ark and they're misusing it, he's fighting for his honour. When the ark is out there on, his own, on its own in Philistine territory, he's fighting for his honour. And I think this is the truth behind it. He's, the Lord is the only true, personal, holy God. The Philistines try to treat him as one God among many. And the Lord will have, not have that. He fights against them. The Israelites try to treat the ark as a talisman and they try to treat God as some kind of impersonal um, force who will come to their rescue, and he will not have that either. He will not share your, your worship with some other God. He will not have you treat him as an impersonal force or, or, a, or an insurance policy or a lucky rabbit's foot. He is, he is a real, personal, holy being, and he has a mind of his own. And how often do I think we forget that and and treat him otherwise? So Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. He has a mind of his own. Or Psalm 135, which is what Kevin read uh, at the beginning. The psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him. In the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. This is what matters, that the Lord does What pleases him? It is our job to understand what pleases him uh, and get alongside it, rather than his job to understand what pleases us uh, and get alongside our agenda. He is not a God who is therefore at our beck and call. He is the king. He uh, He has his own mind. He has his own agenda. And he has chosen us. We are at his beck and call, not him at ours. And, and doesn't it, does, how does it smack you? When it, does it sort of smack you around the face? He says, oh, God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Does he go, whoa, that sounds a bit full of himself. Does it? But then you stand back and think, oh, my goodness. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that is such a good thing. Because he is the only perfect being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the only perfect being. He's the, he's the only one who can be trusted to do the right thing and the loving thing and the proper thing all of the time. We should rejoice that our Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So the Lord's shown himself as a holy, personal God to Israel. He's shown himself as a holy, personal uh, God to the Philistines. And he shows himself as a holy and personal God to the people of Beth Shemesh. Here we are keeping up with the Shemeshians. So the people of Beth Shemesh, they're getting on with harvesting their wheat. 
when, uh, I guess almost, immac- almost uh, miraculously to them, um, the ark of God appears coming down the road, um, drawn on a cart, unaccompanied by two cows. And, and they rejoice and they do the, the right thing. Um, they, they break up the cart, they make a fire, um, they sacrifice the two cows as a thank offering to the Lord. And they do the right thing again, they get the, the Levites to come and, and take the ark from the cart. But not everyone. Seventy people apparently looked into the ark. That seems like a lot. It's only a little thing. You can't get 70 people around it at one time. I don't know whether they formed an orderly queue um, and, and, and troops passed. You could translate it looked at the ark because it was supposed to be covered. So maybe, maybe it, was, it was their sin to look at the ark. Either way, they were not treating this object that symbolized the Lord's presence with respect They've approached him too lightly. That's sobering, isn't it? This is all sobering stuff, I know. But they've approached him too lightly. Even in just the symbol of his presence. So the Lord has returned to Israel. But he's no less concerned with ungodliness than when he left. It's not like he's come back and said... Oh, well, guys, I was a bit harsh. Well, well, let's just step it down a bit for a while. He's still concerned. So this is a sovereign act of his mercy, isn't it? The Lord has caused the ark to return just out of his sovereign providence by fighting against his enemies. It's a sovereign act of mercy, but he will not be treated cheaply. So who can stand? We come back to this question. (coughs) Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And it has to concern us, doesn't it, now, this morning, as we are gathered together as living stones. As the house of God. Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? God. Actually, only one person. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. I never thought of that before. Maybe that's the point. Only one person got to come through the curtain and stand before God only once a year. Only one person can stand before the Lord, this holy God, in their own moral strength in their own righteousness and you know of course that that is Jesus Christ only one hence only one high priest only one out of the nation only one person could stand in his presence in their own righteousness the man Jesus Christ and thankfully those who are subsequently in Christ. Those who've taken advantage of the death of Christ as their skip, as it were, to throw into, throw into all their moral failure, the failure to love the Lord with all your heart and strength and mind. Be thrown into the skip. 
that Christ empties on the cross. The only place of atonement in the universe and in history. Those people who have put on the righteousness of Christ that comes as a gift. Those people who are the justified wicked. Thinking of this quite a lot recently. That I'm justified, I'm a wicked person whose sin the Lord does not count against them. The Lord, it says in the New Testament, justifies the wicked. And I am one of them. And so are you. If you trust Christ, you're one of the wicked people whose sin the Lord chooses not to count against you. That is a wonderful thing. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Only those who are justified in Christ. Only those who go on in that to have a personal relationship with God through Christ. But it's a tricky thing, is it not? Do you not find this? (coughs) Walking with a holy God who calls us into his presence. Can you hold those two things together? Our God is... is, um, frighteningly pure. So pure that if you'd entered into his presence, uh, not in Christ, you would have been burnt to a crisp. And yet he calls you to be his son or his daughter, to be his child and to be his friend. I find it a difficult thing to hold those two things together and, and walk them out in Christ. It's like walking along a, a narrow ridge, isn't it? You fall down one side, you fall down the other. It's just this path in the middle where you hold those two things together and, and, work, and walk forward. How do we honour this God who is the holy justifier, the, the holy forgiver, Well, one of the answers we've been seeing, and it's just kind of rings and rings through these chapters, isn't it? Make sure the the Bible is not rare to you. Bill would tell you to prayerfully read it and to pray informed by it. Prayer and the Bible go together. They're not separate things. Prayerfully read it and read it and pray informed by it. And if you do that, the Lord will reveal himself to you. And one of the things he will, he will reveal over time is, is his holiness, if you're ready to treat him as a personal God. I think the danger is in his holiness, we, we try to then uh, treat him as something less than a person. And he will not have it. If the Bible, we'll say it again, the Bible is rare in your life, then you're not experiencing a personal relationship with God. And that is a self-defeating thing. Chances are you're treating him as an emergency backup or like a talisman. But the other thing I want to suggest is this, just one practical thing. You remember the ACTS acronym for prayer? I guess you've been taught that somewhere in your Christian lives about adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. And supplication simply means um, asking for things. Now, I would suggest that if you go back to the Psalms, the psalmist, uh, psalmists rarely do this in a nice, neat order. Adoration, which is worship, confession, 
Thanksgiving supplication. They, they rarely do that. Uh, so often they come in back to front um, and they come in and say, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? Um, and they kind of work backwards from there and remind themselves, ah, oh, yes, but I've got to be thankful. Um, and, and they confess and they, and they end up with adoration. So let's not take it as a, as a rigid order, but, let's, but I think it is helpful to take those things as four aspects of your prayer life. And I wonder actually if the order of them is the things that they are actually hardest to do. See, I think supplication, asking for things, comes naturally. I think if you're a Christian and you realise you've got a God who invites you to go and ask for things, that comes naturally, does it not? Lord, help. It's the most natural prayer, is it not? Thanksgiving comes probably next naturally. I may be generalising here. But, but so easy to forget. We thank God. Oh, Lord, really, that's really great. Thank you for that this week. But actually, Thanksgiving needs to be practised and we forget it. Confession. When did you last come to the Lord in confession? In your own prayer life and say, Lord, I did this today and I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, that's the verse on the sermon notes. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But how many of us practice confession? I think it's one of the signs of whether you have a personal relationship with God or whether you're treating him as something sub-personal is to whether you are coming to him uh, and confessing. And then adoration. Personal worship. In your prayers, are you praising and worshipping God um, for who he is? Because if that gets forgotten and he's got a good deal smaller, the adoration is meant to magnify him. And when we mean that, we mean make him as big as he, uh, as he really should be um, in our eyes. So remember Acts prayer, but remember that... Uh, Remember the adoration and confession, which I think get lost. And then that's a measure of whether your relationship with God is really a a relationship with a personal, holy God. So just to sum it up, our God is holy and personal. He refuses to be treated impersonally. We saw that through Israel. He fights for his own honour. We see that in the Philistines. He forgives, but he cannot be treated cheaply. See that through the Shemeshians. So I invite you to come and meet him. Because he is here and he is here as holy God. He is here as personal God. And he wants a personal relationship with you. He wants a speaking and listening relationship with you. Which means that you have to get involved in in engaging with the Bible. And engaging with prayer. But... Be ready for a relationship in which the Holy God hears you, not only hears you, but speaks to you and wants you to come and copy him. Father God, we, we confess that we think we know you, but we don't. think we've got you all sewn up and we know how you work, but we haven't. We think somehow we've plumbed, plumbed your depths and 
How foolish. We confess that now. Confess when we think we've somehow got our minds around you. For that we're sorry. And all when we think we've understood how, how prayer works and prayers are answered. And yet forgotten you are. <clears throat> a God with a mind of your own. We're sorry. You are a holy God. You are pure beyond our imagining. You are a personal God, not because you're made in our image, but because we're made in your image. You could have treated us like ants, but you call us into relationship. And Lord, we are so grateful that you... That you came in the person of your son. So we know that you know how men and women work. And you entered into the most personal kind of relationship with us. Man to man. Man to woman. Lord, we're sorry when we th- for the places we thought we've got you worked out. And we ask today for a bigger glimpse. Lord, we're never going to see all of you, even in, I guess, in the new creation. We're going to have perfect glimpse that a human can get of our maker, but we'll never know you uh, in all that you are, but we ask for a greater glimpse. And we ask for it today and in the business of this week. We ask it particularly as we come to your word, that you will move by your spirit and make it living to us. We thank you that you hear us in return. Help us find the words to adore you, to confess, to give you thanks, as well as to bring you our prayers of intercession this week, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.